Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Professor of Sports Analytics at Victoria University, Sam Robertson. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, this is a part two with Sam. And this is based off of a Twitter thread that Sam put out a couple of weeks ago all around um, injury prediction and his thoughts around injury prediction. So if you haven't seen that thread, it got tons and tons of interaction with um, experts in the area, um, with just practitioners weighing in, having their having their thought, putting their thoughts on uh, on this on this area. So if you haven't checked it out, go and follow Sam on Twitter and it's Robertson underscore SJ. Have a look at that thread because this podcast is based basically on that thread. So we start off with just what injury prediction is and the the kind of hype around it. Then we discuss some of the issues which Sam does go into. Obviously, it's 280 characters, so it doesn't go into too much detail, but into that, um, that, that thread and building them building them points out. So the issues around implementing an injury prediction model in practice, so data quality, data volume, relationship between variable, variables, human issues that come with, with this, um, machine learning methods, etc., etc. So this episode is all around injury prediction and the potential to be able to do that in a practical environment. So super, super interesting. Obviously, not obviously, but something that I'm not massively familiar with in this area, but gladly uh, Sam is. So it's a really interesting episode if you are... Uh, interested in this area and even if you're not it's just interesting nonetheless so I hope you enjoy this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics the world's first wireless force plate testing system so the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab so you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world so as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running-based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident, which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. 
If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, iMeasureU.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram, at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Sam Robertson. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast so this morning, and delighted to welcome Sam Robertson. Uh, nearly two years after our last chat, so thanks for coming on, Sam, and uh, welcome to the podcast again. Thanks for having me, Rod. It's uh, uh, Rob. Sorry, I can't get your name right to start. Uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be uh, to be back on, and uh, yeah, thanks again for having me. It's oh, a pleasure, mate. I um, there's a little funny story I, I tell a couple of people uh, when I got called Ron. Um, I was play, I was playing I was playing semi professional football and I was trying to get a big a big money move. So I was trying as from, from from my defensive um, position, I was trying to get as many goals as I could so I could get on the website as many times so people would see my name. And uh, I'd scored one day, and this is going completely off topic, but um, I'd scored one day and I was absolutely delighted because I thought I'm going to get on the I'm going to get on the um, on the on the website again and people are going to see my name and you know get interested in why I'm scoring all the time or whatever. And um, I looked on the website that night, and it said Lacey. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh shit, they got my name wrong." So I, 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 I was that fuming. I ended up emailing the website and saying, "Can you change it?" But they actually had it down as Ron Lacey, not Rob Pacey. So that that that, that was I was fuming. You're um, you go. <laughs> yes, exactly. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, back to the the reason for the podcast. Um, Anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a bit of an update on what you've got going on, a little bit of background, but I mean, if people want to dive a little bit deeper, the episode is 168, we did go into a bit deep background on you, but um, yeah, a bit of an update on you. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I'm probably still, uh, well, as, as last time I'm at Victoria University uh, here in Melbourne, Australia, still as I, as I was then, my role's shifted a little bit since then, but ultimately still, uh, you know, it really... Uh, cool and exciting role really across um, I guess academia and uh, applied sport which I've done for quite a while now um, but background mainly sports analytics and application of, of analytics to different um, sporting performance problems in particular in sport science. Um, these days I, I kind of manage the sport strategy of the university um, particularly across three main areas like our partnerships we, we partner a lot with different sports here uh, sporting codes um, research, obviously, and, and then some of the commercial sport activities we, we undertake. So, you know, some of our main partners are Western Bulldogs um, you know, in the Australian Football League, Tennis Australia, um, so heavily involved in those. Um, and that's, yeah, that's pretty pretty much what I've been up to for the last couple of years. So with the Western Bulldogs, what does – has that changed since last time? I know there was, there was quite a big emphasis of, of your time was um... – Big portion of your time, sorry, was was spent at the Bulldogs. Is that still the same? Yeah, it, it, probably. As as we're speaking, it, it's shifting a little bit. We we certainly have a, a really large goal um, program there, but we've always prided ourselves on being really agile and and responding to the um, well to the industry. And, and certainly, yeah, I, I retain an involvement there. Probably more of an oversight function than, than anything these days. But we've done such a, and we've been lucky and and a little bit. Um, strategic in this as well but we've been so fortunate with respect to, to bringing in some excellent people over the last couple of years um, whether they're PhD students or, or staff and they do such a great job of um, 
of not only undertaking research but also um, performing practice in the in the club, they probably just don't need me anymore, Rob. And that could be as simple as that. I just take a, a seat off to the sidelines. So no, we're, we're still running a really good program, and um, but there's other things also that, that have drawn me back to the university. So it's a bit of bit of both. Um, but it's an evolution of the partnership, which is uh, it's probably evolved every year that I've been there, which is now into year five. Excellent. Happy days. So one thing that is kind of been a late addition to the things we're going to chat about, and it's mainly because of how much exposure you get to practice all over the world in the US and the UK, obviously in Australia. It'd be great to get a bit of an overview from you having chatted just before we hit record on where sports science is going for the as an industry and how that's affecting practitioners, how that's affecting kind of club infrastructures when hiring and what they actually want, what they think they want, what they maybe actually need. It'd be good to get a bit of an overview of where you see sports science. Then we'll dive a little bit deeper into some of the more nuances of, of the role and um, and how that's changing. Yeah, I think fundamentally sports science is at a, a state of, of change and it does differ depending on the sporting code and on, on the country and, and the culture and, and whatnot. But I think if we look at sports science with its with origins in, um, in, in research um, and, and teaching for that matter in, in the academic sector, it's always been quite broad. There's, there's sub-disciplines that exist within it and that, and that continues to, um, to exist. I think in the field is where we've seen most of the change, I think, uh, and there's a couple of different reasons for that. There's um, been a, a large shift with, with the increase in, in technology in particular, in particular wearable technologies into applied sport, in particular um, team sports. I suppose that's probably what I'm, I'm most familiar with as well. Uh, we've probably lost identity a little bit about what we see as the role of the sports scientist. I, I think initially these, these quasi-applied roles, which, which I've been in myself, where we're bringing in someone with academic um, rigour and prowess into an environment to, to help improve a program, We've somewhat lost that a little bit and we've, we've started to kind of figure that the sports scientist's role is to run the GPS or to collect the monitoring data or, or and just become a wash with data and, and really become a, a data management system or a, or a database. So, and, of course, then that, that shifts across across cultures, across fo- football codes, across uh, other team sports, across all sports really. Uh, and, and so fundamentally I think we – We've lost a little bit of identity with that, and, and that, that that place is continuing to change. We, you know, we talk about analytics as well as as another kind of instigator for change in all of this as well. I think um, because we're collecting so much data now and different types of data in sports science, it's a natural progression for the analytics community to start to um, integrate and uh, and start to turn their attention to sports science. Um, and I guess the final thing in, in why the identity of sports science is a, a little bit in a state of flux is, is with respect to it's always been a little bit more difficult to not so much validate but determine the efficacy of, of anything that's being done in the field from a sports science perspective compared to what it is able to be done in the laboratory. And I think uh, that's a challenge that, that is, is, is not going away anytime soon, even with more technology and, and analytics. So it's really incumbent on us to start to clearly articulate that sports science is improving things in the applied environment 
otherwise, you know, th- there could be even be fears for sports science. There's very existence in some sports. I think, you know, we were talking offline about this, but Australia and, and the UK are, are relatively entrenched with sports science in, a, in applied roles, probably less so in the US. So I think in, in the US in particular, and I'm, I'm generalising, but it's really important that sports science shows some very clear outcomes with respect to um, improving performance and or uh, other things such as those relating to injury. How is that for a segue? <laughs> well, <coughs> unfortunately, I'm not going to take up the segue and I'm going to dive a little bit deeper on this <laughs> so we can we'll line that up again later on. That, that was great. Thanks, mate. Um, so in, in terms of the, like, we, like you said about the chat offline about the US market, how do you how do you see that? Because over the last probably five, maybe ten years, there's there's been a lot of guys in the UK, a lot of guys from Australia going out because of the uh, maybe more traditional sports science backgrounds coming from over here, and obviously in the US it's still relatively in its infancy. What do you think? Where do you think that's at as a reflection of these people going over there? Is it still seen, or is it at all seen as? Um, yeah, how how is it seen? Is it like um, the, the people in white coats type of thing? Is it um, is it struggling to make an impact as people maybe up the chain and the hierarchies in these institutions thought it would do? Where do you think it's at in the US? I think it's it's just more foreign. Uh, they don't have the natural pathway within their university education system that that takes someone from undertaking a sports science degree to go straight into a a club, uh, and that's part of the reason why why this is happening. And then you mentioned decision makers and and people in management maybe don't know what they don't know to an extent. And I think that's that's part of it as well. Uh, we we don't have great accreditation, certainly not globally, around what a sports scientist is and and what they do. And I'm not positive that can be solved in the short term, at least. Uh, for the, the reasons I just mentioned earlier, there's a lot of change going in uh, going on at the moment. It's it's not always clear what a, a sports scientist is or, or what they do. Uh, so all those things combined, I, I think, um, are causing a, a little bit of that of that, of that to occur. Uh, the issue, you know, and, and this happens everywhere, but it does tend to happen from what I've observed a little bit more in the US is that uh, that can often result in people that ending up in uh, quote unquote sports science roles when they're they're ill equipped to be in those roles, uh, or they may be something uh, altogether different. You know, for example, a strength conditioning coach or or someone from a different background. Uh, and we, we do see these kind of sports science roles cropping up now in many US franchises that are are really much closer to what we'd see as a traditional strength conditioning coach than a sports scientist. I think. Do you think that is also true in the in terms of like data science, as we discussed offline? Um, a job here in the UK, which was which was titled data scientist, was very much just a strength and conditioning coach or a sports scientist kind of standardised job description in a football academy. Is that a similar state over here with the data science boom? I think it's it's almost exactly the same situation. Again, uh, the skill sets of sports scientists to understand data and understand statistics and, and dare I say it, even uh, data science and machine learning, I think that's that's incredibly useful for them and I would encourage them, you know, most sports scientists to, to do that. But there's a big difference between having a general awareness of, of those disciplines and, and being an expert 
in in those fields. So, yeah, I think that is, is definitely happening, um, uh, and we've seen it firsthand. And you just gave a, a great example of it. And, and you mentioned analytics. That is another buzzword that gets thrown around, and and a lot of the time by sports tech companies who are um, pushing the collection of data and then holding this data and calling it analytics. Is that something? Is, is true analytics something that again has been a little bit misrepresented and a little bit of confusion of what it actually is? Uh, I think there's confusion everywhere on, on what it is, and I, I'm not I'm not as strong on that as, as I am on some of the other things that, that we've just spoken about. Uh, I've read probably you know, ten or so different definitions of, of what in, analytics actually entails, and uh, so I think. You know, I, I swore to myself five years ago I'd never use the word, but I've failed miserably at doing that. I think it's, it's with us to stay now. But the reality is there's people from a, a, a range of backgrounds in what we would call sports analytics roles. But I tend to be a little bit broader with my definition of it that some who tend to kind of delimit it to, to modelling and, and, uh, and, and the like. I, I tend to think about it as something that is more analogous to, you know, computational thinking, for example, where whereby... Uh, we're not just focusing on the modelling per se, we're also uh, focusing on the way that we collect, store, uh, access data, um, format it, uh, visualise it, um, communicate it. I think that's all part of of sports analytics to me rather than just fancy modelling. Excellent. Not quite as... As good a segue, and I haven't I haven't set that up for you as as well. But we'll we'll move into the in the injury prediction stuff that that I was excited to see a 10, 12 um, tweet thread a couple of weeks ago, which was uh, which gained a lot of a lot of uh, interest on on Twitter. So let's have a little dive into the the injury prediction stuff. In terms of injury prediction as a whole, and and it's. Uh, adoption in the industry what where are you seeing this what's what's the where's the land lie in terms of injury prediction out there in the market <laughs> well I, I don't know if i could be any stronger than i than i was there but i, I think i use the phrase waste of time and and <laughs> in answer to your your question more specifically I, i'd say it's in a bit of a mess and the reason it's in a bit of a mess is because there's a, a range of very broad and in some cases very deep issues uh, that are in some cases are human issues, some cases are technical issues, some cases are methodological issues and other times it's technological issues that are all associated with this field. And right now we're going to need to make some extremely large gains in all of those areas um, in order to make this a viable uh, question for anyone really anywhere in applied sport to to be asking and spending time on, I think. So is that are we are, are practitioners coming to that realization, or are people very much still in the I can solve this with this um, I can solve this this problem that I'm getting asked and again maybe up the hierarchy maybe what they've seen on social media or read are, are people still in the thick of it with trying to not realize that it's a waste of time. <laughs> I, th- I think so. I think certainly judging by the response uh, to those posts, some people have come to the same conclusions as I have, which is which is great, but I don't want to create an echo chamber either. I think it's important to have conversations about how it could be could be fixed. And I think every point that I raise, and we'll, we can maybe talk about a few of them in a moment, 
is hypothetically or theoretically solvable. Uh, my point is it's not going to be solved. And most of those points aren't going to be solved anytime soon. So, you know, in, in essence, what we're seeing is not a lot of, and again, we're, we're never privy to what's going on behind the um, closed doors in, in many professional sporting clubs, but we're not really seeing enough multidisciplinary or even interdisciplinary collaboration on, on this problem. So I think, yeah, uh, franchise owners and, and general managers are going to be interested in uh, in this problem because they it's um, it's attractive, it, it saves money and, and maybe helps them win more games. I think uh, analysts are going to be interested in the problem because it's it's interesting uh, it's impactful. If they can solve it, uh, yeah, they're, they're going to have a job, that's for sure. Uh, sports scientists are probably getting belted over the head, head with it by, by everyone they, they talk to, so they probably want to solve it. And that's part of the problem really with why we've seen some sh- shoddy methodology used and, and, and shoddy analysis because they may not be um, well-trained enough to, to do that. And then, of course, athlete management system providers are going to want to look at it because they're collecting you know these large troves of data um, in quite a number of different sports and it's it's just a temptation that's too great to, to not want to, to dig into that um, because of the potential commercial returns they could they could receive. Mm-hmm. So going off that list that you mentioned about the, the potential issues, it'd be good to go down that list and, and have some examples of, of, of some of the issues in, in that category. So let's let's start off with the, the, the human issues. What are the human issues with this this huge area of injury prediction? Yeah, I think <laughs> where to start, I think uh, if we're looking at, at, at models per se, why they originated, uh, why have we gone down this path is they're fundamentally a tipping point that we've reached whereby somewhere along the line we've decided that the injury rates in a given sport or preventable injury rates in a given sport are too high and we must do something about it. I'm not sure I buy into that narrative because I think we've always had injury in sport and, and yes, we want to prevent them, but I point the blame, so to speak, more uh, to what I mentioned earlier. We've started collecting a lot of data, um, some of it without really thinking about why we're collecting it. Um, we've seen advancements in computing. Um, processing time is faster to obtain you know, massive amount of, amounts of data and we've got computing power. Um, um, and we, you know we've got we've got analysts now working in clubs more than we, we did a decade or so ago as well. So the the opportunity has has arisen, and as I said earlier, it's been a, a bit of a, a probably a bit of a temptation. Uh, the fundamental problem with 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 humans and and these models is they probably don't understand them, and and I'm generalising again, but the the end user, in particular, decision maker is not well-versed in understanding the output of, of these models. Now, I'm not being critical of those people. That That's not necessarily their role to be able to do that. And I think it's incumbent on people building the models to ensure that the output is uh, designed in a way that is, is suitable. Which brings me to the second point. I think most of the, the models that are used um, are discretizing a continuous variable all the time, so a probability or a risk uh, or a likelihood into something that is actionable. And I think that's a problem in human decision-making that's as old as, as time itself. How do we decide to make an arbitrary decision, a yes or no decision, does this athlete train or not, are they going to get injured or not, based on a uh, model output that is continuous. And 
um, sports science isn't going to be the discipline that solves that problem. Um, so again, we're faced with problems with that with that particular area that it's been an issue for a very long time in in problems relating to decision making. And then there's other other components that relate to that as well around um, uncertainty. Um, do we understand probability very well? Um, I, I don't think most uh, people that aren't trained in that and even some that are understand that particularly well either. Uh, and there's a number of different other things which relate more to, to human biases, uh, biases that, that, that are relevant here as well. Uh, you know, we start to add more and more, more data points and, and data types. We know that humans aren't particularly good at understanding that many data types, so uh, the eyes start to glaze over a little bit. They they can't retain that information, certainly not longitudinally either. So, in the end, uh, again, this, and this comes back to the point I made earlier around uh, fear for the industry, and, and at very least fear for this type of work is, in the end, people just revert back to a simple heuristic or their own experience as a practitioner to make the decision. So. Uh, you know, if we are to proceed with this space at all, we need to do a lot more around the nexus about interpreting a model output and how that then goes into operationalisation um, in the training environment by a physiotherapist or a, or a high performance manager or, or, or a manager of another kind, I think. Are there clubs, franchises, institutions out there who are making these train or don't train decisions based off these models? Yeah, I, I don't doubt that there are. I think from my own experience, I suggest that there's a far greater proportion of organisations that are actually more dipping the toe in the water than actively using it to uh, inform decision-making. Uh, yeah, there'd be another proportion that are using it as an active decision support system whereby a recommendation would be outputted, um, you know, of a training morning or, 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 a, or a match day whereby a uh, an individual within an organisation has access to that and then can, you know, use that to inform or guide their decision. I think that's probably a more common um, scenario. Uh, I'm sure there's there's people that are using automated models out there to uh, essentially uh, run that process, but I'm, I'm, I think they'd still be in the minority at this point, but I, I really am just guessing and, and basing it on my own experience. So we're going to take a very quick break in the chat with Sam. Hope you enjoyed part one. So coming up in part two, we discuss some more of the technological issues with uh, injury prediction. Then we have a little chat around if we've moved too far to towards the data side of things and we'll and, and if we're lacking the on giving less reliance to the feel of the practitioner the experience of the practitioner and whether sam thinks there is we've gone too far and there's no coming back or whether that will have just as much of an influence in the future as the data um, is at the moment so really interesting part two which continues this theme of injury prediction but just before we do get into part two i want to say a big thanks to fatigue science for sponsoring this episode today so fatigue science have exclusive access of the saft model which is an algorithm developed by the u.s army and if you listen to my episode with ian dunican you'll know exactly what i'm talking about so the saft model analyzes uh, a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted 
effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're going to undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device. But not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ReadyBand from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. Also sponsoring the Pacey Performance podcast today is Omega Wave. So Omega Wave is an, the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train for both the brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy levels and autonomic nervous system balance, it allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize training and then optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position, and this data can be used by the medical practitioner to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. So this measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to their windows of trainability concept. So Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport, military and law enforcement agencies and are now the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So if you want to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, which is omegawave.com and on their social media channels. From one of the points that you fired over, uh, we discussed um, yesterday and today, obviously if that person does get pulled from training and obviously they don't get injured because they're not training, how do we know whether that injury prediction model is actually correct or not correct because the person hasn't trained anyway, so we actually never know whether it was right or wrong? Well, yeah, you, 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 you've answered it there. We, we don't know. Uh, and that's, you know, that's one of the, the really major issues here that uh, we really need to longitudinally develop these models, let them run side by side with actual decision-making of, uh, of practitioners and let the athletes train, let them, let them, let them train fully and, and look for those true positives, so to speak, where, whereby an athlete is predicted to be injured and they, they do indeed go out and get injured. Now, uh, I, I think there's a slight ethical problem there and if, if, if there's not an ethical problem there, there's certainly going to be one uh, are certainly going to be a problem for a performance department that um, particularly once management gets word that they had a model that could have been used to prevent the athlete going out and getting and getting injured and they chose not to act on it. Now, you'd have to have a very supportive management behind you to understand what you're doing there. Uh, and in my experience, that's not particularly common in, in a high-performance sport or a professional sporting environment. So that's difficult. I think another difficult component there is uh, the fact that to build enough samples, enough instances in a, in a data set in order to do this is incredibly difficult. Uh, and again, unless you have access to a, a number of, of athletes that are uh, undertaking quite kind of homogenous training plans for a long period of time, it, it's going to be difficult to gain a significantly useful uh, model. So again, by the time the model's reached a, a point of, of being satisfactory or, or, or usable, so to speak, 
these athletes are probably retired or gone on to another club. So, uh, and, and we're starting again. And, and, that, and that's before we even start talking about individual um, injury types and, and the mechanisms behind the injuries and how they are quite substantially different um, and, and, and all these other fundamental things that we've talked about, like uh, do we have the right inputs? So, yeah, I'm probably um, going across a couple of points there, but there, it's, there's a lot of, lot of things to consider. Is this why AMS companies are getting so excited because they do have a lot of data from a lot of different teams, a lot of different sports, a lot of different ages, populations, etc. Oh, I, I don't doubt that, and I, I think I mentioned that earlier. That that's it's a logical place for them to want to move, and I move their attention, and I understand why they do. And I, I'm not necessarily being overly critical of them for that either. I'm just. Uh, I'm thinking that they should probably be a little bit more creative and, and think outside the box about how they could add value to their clientele beyond that. And I think some do that better than others. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's hopefully that, that space is competitive enough now that, that certain companies will, will have to do that in order to survive, which, which is a good thing for the marketplace, of course. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So just moving on to the technological issues that we may face with with, with this and something that obviously you've mentioned before, what are the technological issues um, that face us when when moving into this area? Well, the main the main issue here is is real time. So uh, we we when people are developing a model, they're, they're developing it and and running it presumably before a training session or before competition and and, and maybe again after. Uh, the reality is when an injury occurs, it occurs. In the midst of a training session or in the midst of a of competition, and so uh, the technology that we have right now that we're using as an input on many of these models is, is not coming to us in in real time. And I, I think I've used the example before of you know uh, in the future an intramuscular sensor that tells us particular fatigue of a muscle in in real time is is a way that maybe we could make some gains in in future. Uh, we don't have that right now, and and even if we did, it, it wouldn't just be a tech a logical issue. It's it would be a um, uh, an ethical issue again. It would be is it encumbering the um, uh, is it cumbersome for the athlete to wear? Uh, um, can we get the data from that quickly enough and process it enough and then action it enough in order to um, to do something about it as well? And you know, there's a lot of things adding up to saying that that's some time away <laughs> to be able to do any of that. Um, I think the other issue just as, as we face now with respect to from a technology perspective is that uh, probably the data quality in some aspects is, is not what we need. And I, I kind of alluded to that um, then. You know, we, we have some some fantastic sensors and, and, and wearable technologies that is available to us now in the field, but uh, they're still not of a sufficient quality to, um, to really give us that predictive ability, so to speak, that we're really after if we're going to look at this from an injury perspective. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to be done in, in that space. And I think there's, it's not just data quality. It's, it's that's from technology. It's also data to data volume. We're not collecting enough data. And I, I think that people kind of raise their eyebrows when I, when I say that, but, uh, the reality is we tend to focus on information that's available to us in the training or the competition environment. And the reality is most of the time that an athlete exists or, lives their life, they are not under the guise of, um, well, they're not under the four walls of, of their uh, of their employer. And, 
yes, there's ubiquitous monitoring options now that are available in, in some respects, but um, I guess if we stood back and, and asked ourselves the question, what are we not considering or what are we even not aware of yet that could be worth considering if we were starting uh, and looking at this problem from scratch? There'd be a lot of things we'd, that we would come up with. And, and uh, you know, without some technological advancements, you know, particularly in things like psychology and mood and, and these areas, um, we're, we're not going to make meaningful um, um, incursion into the problem, I don't think. So with that, with them issues of obviously the, 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 the players not been in our care for 21 hours of the day, probably at best when it comes to some football clubs, it, to me it doesn't seem like we're anywhere near being able to manage or, sorry, not manage, monitor them 21 hours just given the um, the difficulty in some clubs have actually had the guys had in getting the guys to wear a GPS vest in the time that they are in the in the care of the um, of their employer. It doesn't sound like that's uh, close to me. No, I, I, I don't think, uh, and I, again, I, without knowing the environment uh, of every sporting organisation around there, I, around the world, I, I don't think I would disagree with you there. Uh, you know, we, we are starting to, to be to obtain more ubiquitous monitoring, but it's it's some time away. Uh, and, and if we were, even if we were able to do that, uh, there's still it's it's a it's a it's both issues. It's data quality and quantity. It's uh, even if we did choose to undertake more ubiquitous monitoring when when an athlete is at home, for example, are we getting the right data types, and is it going to be of sufficient quality? Um, that's that's an issue as well, and it's actually. It's a, it's a two, double-edged sword here because the reality is as well that because we don't have those data types, we we then fall victim or fall prey to availability bias and we focus on what's in front of us and we do focus on, on GPS. Let's look at some GPS metrics and connect them to injury because we're collecting those already. Uh, you know, certainly uh, global positioning system technology was not developed with the idea of predicting uh, athlete injury in mind <laughs> and it, it wasn't even brought over to sport for that purpose so I, I think sometimes we've lost a little bit of common sense of this and just some some basic logic to step back from a problem and ask um, why is this athlete um, become injured and and we might actually be able to answer that question better with some common sense than, than all of the data at the moment and that's for those that, for those that know me, that's not a, a comment I, I make very often. I, you know, I'm very data driven in my decision making and, and my approach to most problems, but I'm just not convinced of it here. Hopefully, um, for reasons I've given over the last half an hour. Do you think that there will be a swing? Not maybe not a swing. That's maybe a little bit over the top, but a movement back from the data, heavy data influences back into this common sense like feel of the practitioner of we kind of gone too far that way now to ever kind of come back no i think i think we're still and it is very problem dependent and we're talking about a specific uh, problem that's pervasive right now but i think we're really at the start of that journey still in 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 sport i think uh you know, if you go into most sporting organisations, some of them are still grappling with how to even store and access their data, let alone um, analyse it and, and interpret it and action it quickly. So I think, uh, yeah, we, we're still at the very early stages there. Once that becomes more autonomous and more part of 
current practice for sporting organisations, the ability for them to generate an output which can be directly compared with their own idea or recommendation, you know, in a split second, which admittedly is, is available now, but it's just not as commonplace as it could be. Uh, I think we'll start to see a lot more um, interesting comparisons between human and and, and machine or, or model decision making. Um, but also maybe even some some supplementation and uh, the literature is a little bit mixed on whether that's a good or a bad thing uh, about combining judgments of of models and humans is 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 is, is a good thing and it works. But I think in sport uh, it should it should <laughs> theoretically help us with some problems, particularly uh, like injury, as I, as I just mentioned, uh, whereby there's a lot of metrics that are. Um, a lot of a lot of measures and a lot of constructs that we can't measure with data right now, and and frankly, we could probably get more insights from a conversation with the athlete than we would um, with a, a mood scale or a, um, or some other measure of an athlete's psychology. And I, I apologise for using those references a couple of times. I'm not um, criticising psychology. It's just they're just two that come to mind, and I think um, a conversation might be more powerful for for this purpose at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, we've discussed some anyway, but I'll just make sure I've, I've we've kind of covered it off. The methodological issues, um, maybe in in terms of in in this area, maybe maybe having looked at the research as well. What are them major methodological methodological issues here? Yeah, I think I think obviously we touched on the analysis uh, a little bit earlier on, um, and in particular around um, around the interpretation. This is probably the one that is is most easily solvable. Certainly, um, you know the the analysis improving our analytical tools and analytical methods is not going to be something that um, provides us with the gains in this area in the short term. I don't think. Um, you know, even if we have very complex unstructured data that we're looking to to use to help a part of a prediction model that requires deep learning models, I think. We could do that tomorrow if we wanted to. Uh, it's more about ensuring that interdisciplinary teams are put together to address a, a complex problem like this one, uh, that appropriate analysts or appropriately trained analysts are, in, are involved in the process. But equally, you know, I, I, where I've, I've read you know work in the past where analytically it's been, been quite good but uh, there's no theoretical underpinnings from from human physiology or, or human performance included. So, uh, you know, again, you can be, be critical of the inputs that are used and, again, I won't name names, but some of the inputs used in some very fancy models in this space have, have been um, very questionable or, or they just don't make any logical sense that someone from sports science wouldn't include those inputs. So, again, this is just another reason about why we need to, to pull, the, pull teams together Um to solve that, so again, you know, if you, if you look at some of the research, there there has been issues with, um, you know, throwing the kitchen sink, so to speak, at this problem. Uh, some very fancy machine learning models, for example, uh, uh, probably not accounting for repeated measures on on problems. Again, um, overinflating a model's performance by using the same player over and over again in that model. Um, sometimes there's been no cross validation, no um, no generalization of that model onto a new population, which of course is, is when we know whether that model is actually any good at all. Um, and uh, the reality is, of course, if we if we build a model 
that works very well on our athletes and our athletes only that it's still not particularly useful for for us because uh, eventually those athletes or very quickly those athletes retire or, or get transferred away to another club so it's got to be generalizable um and again I, we haven't really talked about this but there's the the human cost and the actual cost of all of this work um which it does beg the question what would these people do be doing if if they weren't working on this and some might argue that <laughs> they might not have a job <laughs> at all but uh and that's that that may well be true but uh again i'd like to think that there's other things they could spend their time on um you know just even improvements in efficiency in in, in the sports environment but also um yeah, let, let's be a little bit more creative. Let's think about some things that we can work on together to improve sporting performance rather than just focusing on injury. Mm-hmm. When, when you say repeated measures, just to kind of dial it down for the the simpleton that is that is me, what do you mean by repeated measures in this scenario? Yeah, uh, it, it's, 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 it is getting into the weeds a little bit. I mean, essentially what we're talking about is uh, – Running a not considering a an athlete uh, on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday in your your data set as as independent as not the same athlete. Whereas whereas in reality we know that what an athlete does on a Tuesday and and a Wednesday and a Thursday um, and how they feel and and how they train they they're related because it's the same human producing the same or well, roughly the same response day in day out. Uh, so there's been a number of high, high profile, not necessarily high profile, but there's a number of highly cited cases where uh, there's been models developed that have used a very small sample uh, of people, but a very high sample of instances because they have considered each sample as independent. Uh, and my point is you, that inflates how good a model looks when we say we have 20,000 data points, but if they're only on 10 athletes, it's not quite as impressive as it sounds. I understand. So if if people are out there listening thinking, oh, God, I've just dedicated six months of my professional career to this, where do – and they're kind of rethinking what life actually is now. Where do, where do people go – where do we go from here for practitioners that are getting into this or trying to answer these types of questions? Well, the first comment on that is that that science, and it happens. I think um, anyone who's been involved in in science, or and it's not always science. Obviously, it's sometimes practice within uh, in a sporting sports science environment. Although I'd ask, I would argue that an applied sports scientist is still a still a scientist. Uh, so hopefully, they've learned things from that, and and you know if that's um, better skill sets in analysis, if it's um, it's caused them to go and have a conversation with an athlete or another practitioner they wouldn't have otherwise had, and that's that's great as well. Uh, and of course, we we learn from our failings as well as <laughs> as well as our learnings and, and our positive outcomes. So uh, that's the first thing I would, I would say. Uh, and secondly, I, I, I don't show uh, in response to your question. I'm not sure I totally have, have the answer to to it um, because I'll probably contradict myself. You know, we, we talked earlier around. Um, yeah, the pervasive nature of data and technology and that's really kind of created this need for a generalists in the sports science community and, and certainly in the practical sense. But again, we, we also have an, a need probably more than ever for um, for specialists, for specialists uh, in, in, in the various sports science sub-disciplines 
um, not only in, in research and academia, but also in, in clubs as well and in, in sporting organisations. So, again, it sounds like I'm contradicting myself. We, we just need, we need both of those. Um, so my advice with, with that would be, as, as it always is, is um, no matter which way you go, is, is find a point of difference. And right now, um, unless you've, you've got a way to solve all of the issues we've, we've, we've talked about in the last little while and, and, and some that we haven't, uh, injury prediction is not going to be your point of difference. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that we've missed that just because of my um, lack of knowledge in this area that may be, may be interesting to the listener in terms of this injury prediction discussion? Oh, listen, I think we've covered most of it. There's, there's always um, smaller issues relating to you know, methodology and technology as, as we've spoken about. But uh, the impression, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's terribly important for the, the message yeah, that I'm trying to convey, I suppose, here today. Uh, I guess what I'm saying for the immediate future, the problem is intractable. And I think uh, it doesn't mean that doesn't mean to say that it will never be solvable, we'll never be able to move forward in it. Uh, but I think there's a number of different areas that need to move forward all at once um, in order for us to do that. And, and without a concerted attempt by a number of different people and, in fact, a number of different industries all at once um, to improve the technology, to improve the data, to improve human decision-making, we, we're not going to get that anytime soon. So. Yes, someone's going to do the work and, and get us there, but I think uh, for the immediate future, that shouldn't be people working in sport and it shouldn't be people that are researching in sports science. Mm-hmm. So just, just one last question. It's some, just I wrote it down when you mentioned it and it was the intramuscular sensors and that got me thinking of what I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of where technology is heading, tracking technology, maybe been, been worn and, and wearables. Where do you think we are going with that? And is the kind of GPS takeover just going to kind of continue to roll or is there going to be something else that, that comes along which not takes its place but kind of infiltrates the market and becomes the, um, the next interesting thing? Oh, listen, we're probably getting a little bit off my area of expertise, but um, certainly – uh, bio, bioinformatics and, and sensors and, and the like, uh, they appear to me to be growing at a, a very uh, fast rate. And then you've, you've got computer vision to add to that as well. Uh, again, probably less so for the problem we're talking about here today, but certainly for other other problems, uh, that's, that's going to be incredibly powerful at making, making sense of of things that are happening on on vision and, and other other mediums, and then we've I mentioned earlier we've got we've got deep learning developments in deep learning that are going to be able to take unstructured data and, and do great things with those as well. So yeah, don't, don't get, get me wrong, things are moving really really quickly in in that space. Um, so I've, I've actually forgotten what, what your initial question was, but <laughs> yeah, certainly there's there's things happening in that area, and it, it is. Um, yeah, who knows what the next big big thing is? I, I probably can't answer that, but things are moving moving quickly for sure. Superb. Well, yeah, I didn't mean to didn't mean to stitch you up there, but thank you for that. Um, anyone that wants to ask you any questions or dive a little bit deep into any of the things that we've discussed, what's the best place for people? Where's the best place for people to go, Sam? 
Well, like, like, um, I'm sure you can, can send an email um, to, to sam.robertson at, at vu.edu.au or, or again on social media, I, I, uh, I do use Twitter as, as my platform and, and, you know, we've had some great debates and conversations over there of late. Certainly, um, I think the more we're, we're talking about these types of things, the better for the industry uh, because we can all either move forward on progressing um, some questions and other times we can uh, put someone on the shelf for a while to move on to bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. Any more Twitter threads that may be of interest coming up? <laughs> well, we, we can't ever do it, Rob, but I, uh, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll put some thought into it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there's, there are a couple other things that, that uh, are, are reaching uh, peak levels of interest, but none quite so uh, pervasive and urgent as, as injury prediction was. So I'm glad it's out there and we've had some conversations about it uh, today and, and online. And uh, yeah, it won't be too far away. There'll be another one, I'm sure. Good stuff. And in terms of research in this area for you? Yeah, it's not something that we're looking at in, in the, if you're speaking about injury prediction space, yeah. we're, not, we're not looking at it at the moment. Um, okay. We certainly, uh, for, for the reasons that I've, I've outlined, but we, we certainly are interested in some of the methodological issues that, that have been raised and um, in particular how people uh, in high-performance sport understand risk and understand uncertainty and, and probability. I think that's a very relevant uh, topic to the field, so we, we continue to do a lot of work in that and, and um yeah, we continue to also do a lot of work with, with tracking data for various applications. Uh, so they're, they're probably two areas of research we, we're focusing on that have some crossover to what we talked about today. Lovely. Well, thank you for that. Really appreciate you coming on, and it's nice to uh, nice to chat again and go through something that is creating so much discussion and debate in the industry at the moment. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Sam. So massive thanks to Sam for giving up his time to come on and chat about an area that is clearly of massive interest to him and is growing and growing in, uh, in an area of interest for many practitioners out there. Out there. So hopefully it gives a, a really nice overview of, um, of this area. So thank you to the sponsors of this episode today. Got some really exciting guests coming up over the next couple of weeks from a various... Um, array of sports and countries and backgrounds so hope you'll tune in Uh, thank you very much again for your support and i will chat to you next week